Inspirational leaders are rare in New Zealand, says Dennis Welsh, a former deputy editor for The Listener. In fact, he thinks most of our prime ministers have been about as inspiring as earthworms. (laughs) But he says there are two exceptions. Joseph Savage, who established the welfare state, and Norman Kirk who had 631 days as Prime Minister in the 1970s and then died in office. Dennis believes Norman Kirk still speaks to us as a leader who believed governments should have a clear moral purpose and that big business should stay out of politics. His new book is an ode to Big Norm, as well as a call to remember the lofty vision that Norman Kirk had for what New Zealand could be. The book's called We Need to Talk About Norman, New Zealand's Lost Leader. And Dennis Welsh joins me now. Hello. Hello, Jesse. Fair to say you're a little late to the Norman Kirk fan club? That's a fair comment, yes. (laughs) As I say in the book, I was actually out of the country as a young man when he was Prime Minister. And I wasn't unduly impressed with him at the time. Uh, But as the years have gone on, I've come to see more and more good in what he stood for. And let's face it, this country has changed a lot since the Rogenomics Revolution of the 1980s. And what happened before that, the kind of politics we had in the years after the war up to 1984, has tended, in my view, to be uh, somewhat overlooked in recent years. It's like it's, uh, as the listener feature about this says, uh, another country. And anyone... Mm perhaps born since the 80s, would hardly begin to know what life was like in New Zealand. And it wasn't perfect, of course. It wasn't all wonderful. But there was something about the way we were governed, and in particular the way Norman Kirk governed us, that I believe we can still learn from, yes. How much of the Norman Kirk myth and legend is enhanced enhanced by or due to the fact that he died in office, do you think? It certainly adds a powerful element of tragedy to his life and politics uh, in the same way as you might say uh, it did to John F. Kennedy. Had Kennedy lived and served perhaps two terms as president and got enmeshed in the Vietnam War, we might not remember him so fondly. So that is a factor. Uh, Kirk was only 51, uh, but there was something more to it than that, I think, Jesse. Um, He was a very big, open-hearted man full of humanitarianism, in a way we don't often see in letters, in in our leaders. Um, that, that quote you read out at the start, I was a bit harsh on our other leaders perhaps, <laughs> but it is the opening lines of the book, and I yeah. guess you want a nice grab right at the start. <laughs> um, it's true, though, when you think about it, think about the politi- politicians who have led us over the years, not many really stand out, not many really reach out to our hearts, and very few have the kind of vision Kirk had, especially for this country in its role on the world stage. Yeah, you mentioned John F. Kennedy. That's an obvious um, comparison, given that they were both inspirational leaders cut off in their prime. Um, and then you also mentioned Abraham Lincoln. Why is he a good reference point for Norman Kirk? Because I think Lincoln stands out like a beacon as a leader who governs with a much greater sense of moral purpose than most leaders do or can allow themselves to. And since the uh, Rogernomics days and the advance of neoliberalism as the predominant ideology in our politics, uh, you can't help but notice that uh, politicians are much more reluctant to take moral stands on things. They prefer, prefer to 
present themselves as uh, competent managers rather than as visionary leaders. The only one in recent years who's tried to be different to that was, of course, Jacinda Ardern, and um, look at the price she hmm. paid for that. Why do we need to talk about Norman now? Because neoliberalism is the dominant ideology of our time, as I say, and I think it's uh, very unhealthy for our politics and for our democracy. Writing and research in Kirk has led me on to a raft of books about the encroachment of neoliberalism, which is, if uh, listeners aren't familiar with that word, another word for it is hypercapitalism. Uh, it's the uh, ideology that has given us increasing inequality. It has given us uh, the globalization of of money, of speculation. It's the world has become a giant casino. And here's the thing, Jesse. Uh, it dawned on me as I was writing this book that while people like me and perhaps you have grown up with the concept of the nation state as being the defining mm -hmm. uh, paradigm of our times, uh, that almost means nothing now in the face of global money. As I say in the book, global money runs free while politicians talk like prisoners in a cell. We can do so much in our own country, only so much. But so long as global money dominates our lives and the way our economy works, and it does, uh, we're relatively powerless. Now, that wasn't true in Kirk's time. In Kirk's time, there was daylight between the money world, the business world, and the state, the government. The state had a clear moral purpose, and it wasn't intended to be a business that ran efficiently with bottom lines and outcomes. Of course, those were part of it. But... Uh, Government had a moral purpose. It was there to do good for the people and to look after the people. And while that's still there and, and the current Labour government is doing its best to live up to it, I rather fear that uh, the power of money is too great for governments to govern in the old social democratic way. Yeah, there's also this <clears throat> excuse me, cult of individualism that comes with neoliberalism, right? Every man for themselves. Individualism, yes, and you might also call it uh, consumerism. Uh, when did you last hear the word citizens? Mm -hmm. uh, we're all consumers, customers now of the state. Uh, people who um, go to social welfare or seek emergency housing are known as clients. Now, does that tell you something about how businessified our society has become? So probably a good time to um, mention that famous Norm Kirk quote, which you point out is not completely original, but um, he famously said that his idea of a healthy country was one where citizens could realistically expect to find someone to love, somewhere to live, somewhere to work, and something to hope for. Is that still a good template for New Zealand? And, and how are we doing? I suspect I know the answer. It is, I believe. It's saying, essentially, look, we don't actually need all that much. We certainly don't need all this consumerism that's uh, swamping us. Uh, yes, of course, we all like to buy things and get nice things and improve our lives, but uh, Kirk felt that country like, countries like ours were, were pretty well off, basically, compared to, in his day, certainly the poor countries yeah. of the world. And that, that, those days have included large parts of Asia, which have since gone ahead of us economically. Uh -huh. um, he felt that we should be satisfied with a lot less, yes. He, he's greed. He, took, he loved that quote of uh, Gandhi's, is it? That um, the, the earth has a, enough for every man's need, but not for every man's greed. Uh -huh. um, if we can allow for the gender adjustment there. Yeah. Um, so he felt that the country we'd built was a good one, but we, sh we were lucky. We were a lucky country. We'd done pretty well, certainly after the war we had. 
uh, the first 30 years after the Second World War, and that we should now start giving back something to the rest of the world. And that's why he had a big focus on the poor countries of Asia, the developing world, on global peace. Remember, he was a prime minister who actually didn't just complain about nuclear testing, but sent ships of this country's navy uh, to French Polynesia to protest about it. And that never happened before, and it has never happened again. And he stood up against apartheid as well. How did that go for him? I have a whole chapter about that. Uh, that was a very brave thing to do because in his time, rugby was much more a part of the Kiwi culture than it is now. I think rugby, racing and beer was the mantra. It was a much more <laughs> male society and men loved their rugby and the uh, long-standing rivalry with the Springboks was absolutely embedded in, in the culture so that when the Prime Minister suggested that the Springboks not be allowed to come because their team was chosen on racist lines, there was a huge outcry, and not just from the right wing and the Conservatives, but from many people in the Labour Party itself, who were much more working class in those days. Uh, so it was an heroic thing to do. Uh, he did it, but it cost him votes. It probably cost Labour the next election, in fact, because so many provincial seats that might have swung Labour's way uh, was so annoyed about the decision not to have their rugby against the South Africans that they turned against Labour and let uh, the government of Robert Muldoon in. I'm talking to Dennis Welsh about Norman Kirk. His new book is called We Need to Talk About Norman, New Zealand's Lost Leader. And Norm's contemporaries described him, Dennis, as wide of purpose, not unlike a man who knows his time is limited and his health was a problem. Do, do you think he felt like he was on a deadline? It would seem so. There's no absolute hard evidence that he, he did know he was going to die young, but he did have a lot of um, heart turns and what might now seem like um, uh, many strokes, uh, fainting fits. Uh, he was not a well man. He came across as very robust and fit and strong. He loved swimming. He was a big man, very tall, very large, heavy possibly close to obese at times, but um, as with all successful politicians, had a huge amount of energy, and that played out in public very successfully. But in the last few months of his life, he began to wilt visibly. He had a misjudged operation, a double varicose vein operation, which he shouldn't have had, and that caused the lung to escape from his uh, his legs. Uh, what am I saying? A, a blood clot to escape yeah. from his legs up into his lungs, and that was the beginning of the end. You talk about the um, the problems which you um, trace back to neoliberalism and some of those changes in the 1980s. Um, we're looking at issues like inequality. Um, and we don't hear much about trickle-down theory anymore, but we still kind of hear this theory that economic growth will solve our problems. Um, Kirk said... The more there is to share, the less the will to share. Was that prophetic, do you think? Very, very. And he was also very prophetic about the um, what was then known as the permissive society because he came to power at a time when young people like me, I must admit, were running around protesting about war and nuclear testing and uh, believing that world peace was reachable and desirable. We thought that... And that also carried with it the connotation that permissive society uh, meant freedom to, um, to sleep around, to take lots of drugs, you know, to drop out, all that kind of stuff. Now, Kurt pointed out that um, 
the permissive society also gave people permission to uh, exploit others and to make more money out of them and to foster inequality in society. Uh, you could say he began to see the beginnings of that, of what we now have, that much greater inequality creeping into um, this culture and this country. Uh, and had he lived, uh, I'm not sure he could have resisted those global forces completely, the, the forces that came not just with Roger Douglas, but with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan that swept the world in the 80s. It would be hard for any small country to stand up against that. But I rather think he would have modified it considerably and uh, we would not have had the social damage we had uh, when uh, Longy and Douglas did their thing. Yeah, I wonder if your next book, Dennis, should be a novel in which Kirk has two terms and you reimagine what New Zealand looks like in the 1980s. <laughs> well, I've certainly got a few ideas about other books and they probably would be along those lines, whether it would be a novel or not, I don't know. But the whole business of writing about those times has got me thinking, look, look, I don't want to glamorise them. Be, be clear about that. There was not a great time for women or for Maori or for gays. Uh, all that was to come. And in some ways, that is the upside of neoliberalism, that we've had a, a much greater uh, social tolerance. That, that's wonderful. But with that has come, if you like, economic intolerance. And that's something Kirk would never have stood for. Yeah. And while we're at it, I mean, we talk about him being a... Um... A, a moral, um, a very morally strong human being, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, there are aspects of Norman Kirk's character that, that certainly by today's standards, even, even even at the time, looks like moral weakness. He was um, arguably homophobic. Um, he could be quite nasty about other people, indiscreet. And technically he was responsible for the Dawn Raids. It's true. Um, I don't try and um, paint him as a saint at all. I, I have a section of the book devoted to some of those very things you've just read out. Um, but uh, we have to also be aware of the dangers of presentism, which is judging how people in the past acted according to our apparently lofty standards mm -hmm. today. Um, and let's face it, the society at large was pretty homophobic, pretty much more racist than it is now. Women were nowhere. Kirk wasn't alone in that. He led in many ways, but in other ways, he was just a man of his time. And um, while we can't excuse him for that in our terms, um, it would be unnecessarily harsh, I think, to judge him on that basis alone. Most people with any interest in the topic would uh, credit Michael Joseph Savage with the welfare state. That's just, yes. that's just you know, that's stamped on his legacy forever. Do we understand, is there wide understanding of what Norman Kirk's legacy is in New Zealand public life? Insofar as he's remembered, and I'm not at all sure that people of younger generations do remember or even know of him, um, it would be for his foreign policy moves, really, that stand against French nuclear testing um, echoes down the years and the courage to stand against apartheid in a way no New Zealand leader ever had up to that point. And remember the Prime Minister that came after him, Muldoon, allowed the Springboks back into the country in the next tour, and we saw what that was like. So in terms of some big foreign issues, uh, Kirk will be remembered, he does stand out. He was less successful at home economically, although he certainly did a great deal more for the poor than previous leaders had, apart from Savage and the Labour government, the first Labour government. But um, 
So he did do quite a bit, no question. Established the housing corporation, advanced the Waitangi Tribunal, that was huge. Huh. Uh, ACC, which is true, national that initiated, but it came in in his term in office. Um, I think the thing I was going to say about the economy was that um, he was very unlucky. Leaders can be uh, lucky or unlucky often in terms of the circumstances of their time. And uh, just as Kurt was getting into a stride, we had the first oil shock when Arab countries uh, ratcheted up the price of oil very sharply and suddenly uh, it was uh, not as much petrol to go around. The economy suffered badly. Uh, the whole world was roiled by that. Other governments fell because of it. Um, so, and also at the very same time, Britain, our long-term trading partner, we had sent most of our produce for decades, uh, joined the uh, what was then the European Economic Community, forerunner of the EU, and uh, that shifted our trade considerably as well. So there were some big hits economically coming from overseas, and uh, you know, any government, left, right or centre, would stagger under those. Your examination of Kirk's leadership involves a bit of a sort of a meditation on what makes a great leader. And one word that comes up, which I think is an interesting one and maybe a not often considered one, is humility. What is the role of humility in leadership? I think it's uh, not showing off uh, the perks of office, for one thing. Kirk hated anything that suggested he was enjoying the perks of office, whereas his um, uh, contemporaneous Australian Labour leader, Gough Whitman, flew everywhere in a Boeing. Kirk insisted on his overseas travels uh, being done in an old Air Force Hercules, which is a noisy, rackety old crate. Um, he lived very humbly. Uh, he had a perfectly ordinary house in the suburb like anyone else. He uh, he, um, he he didn't like taking um, the cars that were laid on for him as Prime Minister. He would often drive himself, even when he was very sick, dying, you might say, uh, he would still drive himself back and forth to work from his um, home in the Wellington suburb of Seaton. Uh, he simply, I think that's humility. He felt he was a man of the people. Uh, he was not above them. He was not better than them. He reflected their values, and uh, it wasn't his place to uh, disrupt the world stage in a, in a pompous you know, sort of way. When he died, people around the world shared some pretty incredible uh, things about him and thoughts about him. What stands out to you? People who broke down in tears. Uh, I had it initially, had a uh, a whole chapter that had to get dropped. I mean, about where were you when Kirk died and the number of people who just were stunned and shocked. Even Robert Muldoon, his, his opposition leader at the time, was um, was visibly shocked by it. Uh, people just couldn't believe it because although we know now that he wasn't a well man, by and large, it was pretty covered up at the time. The media weren't perhaps, how shall we say, as investigative of, of politics as they uh, then as they are now. So a lot of that didn't come out in the media. Uh, even to his own colleagues, he had ups and downs. He seemed down at times, ill, but then he seemed to pick up again. He had that natural energy and robustness. But no one dreamed he was going to die. So when the Prime Minister of the country, at 51 years old, after barely 18 months, 20 months in office, um, dies in the night, uh, the country woke up on a Sunday morning, September the 1st, 1974, in a state of shock and disbelief. And so many people were always, just as people of my generation will remember where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah. So I think anyone 
of um, adult or even child age in 1974 will remember where they were and what they were doing when they learned of Kirk's death. And, and the body travelling through the country afterwards too, huh? <laughs> Not quite the same as Savage. Uh, the, when Savage died in office in 1940, he had, it had been known that he was sick. Mm. His body was taken on a train from Wellington to Auckland, and that made an almost royal progress through the station mm. and through the country, stopping at every station on the way. Kirk's wasn't quite like that, but certainly, as you say, the cortege passed through the streets of Wellington on a miserable rainy day. It was flown to Christchurch, it was taken through the streets of Christchurch and lay in state in the town hall, and then it was flown uh, down to where he was born, Waimati, in South Canterbury, and buried there. So in a way, it was a kind of um, progress through the country, and uh, through the whole time, the weather was absolutely terrible, as if the gods were crying for Norman <laughs> And so this is a book about one person, a biography, but for you, is it a little bigger than that? Is it is it an opportunity to reflect on our values and our hopes for our own country? Absolutely. Two things. Norman Kirk, the man himself, uh, and the tragedy of his life being cut short, yes. Uh, but you're right. It was. It's a book just as equally about the way we were governed then, the way our government operated. Uh was nothing like the inequality we have now. Uh, nothing, child poverty was an unknown concept, although one would have to say that perhaps things weren't quite as good for uh, poor Maori then. Uh, but overall, we were a much more prosperous country. And uh, as I say, business did not have its uh, foot on government. Business has colonised government since those days, the world of money and business. And that's okay up to a point. I mean, a government is a business to some extent. But uh, it also has something that business can't do. And that's really what government's all about. What we used to call it social democracy. It still is technically, but it's been hollowed out. Uh, and I've been reading book after book, which testifies to this uh, in countries, not just like New Zealand, but you know, Australia, Britain, United States. We see what's happening there by the rise of um, far rightism. Uh, democracy is imperiled in a way it wasn't then. We took it for granted, and that was a mistake because we thought it would go on forever the mm. way it was, but now it's under threat. So I just want to remind people that uh, while we're not going back to some of the uh, less uh, satisfactory aspects of society then, uh, there's still a lot we can take from it that we should get back again. And above all, in my view, uh, we have to have a government that is not so beholden to big business. Uh, thank you for the work you've put into this book, Dennis Welsh, and thanks so much for starting the conversation. Thank you, Jesse. It's called We Need to Talk About Norman, New Zealand's Lost Leader, and my guest today, Dennis Welsh.